everybody. I'm Julie Sugarman, Senior Policy Analyst at the Migration Policy Institute, and I want to welcome you to Effects of the Pandemic on High School English Learners and Ways to Help Them Recover. Uh, before we get started, just wanted to go through a couple of housekeeping issues. Um, the first is um, if you have a problem accessing the webinar, uh, give us a call at 202-266-1929. There's going to be a Q&A at the end, so uh, there will not be a voice Q&A, but please put your um, questions into the Q&A box, and you can go ahead and do that while everybody is speaking. Um, you don't have to wait for the end. Uh, you can also email your questions to events at migrationpolicy.org. You can also tweet at migrationpolicy or use the hashtag. MPI discuss. And of course, we'll have the uh, video up, the uh, audio up on, on our website um, shortly after the um, presentation. Uh, if you're not familiar with us, the National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy at MPI is um, one of the, the parts of MPI, but we, instead of looking at immigration and, uh, as the movement of people, which are um, the rest of the folks at MPI do, or many of them, we look at uh, integration and, and what happens to uh, immigrants and refugees when once they uh, arrive here in the US. We, um, most of us work primarily on education and training in early childhood, K-12, which is my area, and adult education and workforce development. We do also work in uh, language access and the governance of integration policy. So related to this webinar, we released a report today, um, a report that I wrote called The Impacts on English Learners of Key High School Policy, uh, state high school policies and graduation requirements. Um, and I just wanted to say a couple of words. I'm not actually a speaker um, on, on the webinar as I often am when I write a paper, but I just wanted to give you a little bit about um, what this paper is about. We've been interested uh, here at MPI in, in high school English learners for a long time. And, and one of the reasons is just because of the complexity of the system, the students who arrive have a variety of students who are in high school as English learners have a variety of needs and characteristics. And then as a result of that, there's a variety of programs and services that are offered. And so, you know, how high schools figure out what to offer and, and um, the resources necessary, all of those issues have all uh, always been of interest to us. And um, this paper, we wanted to focus in on the state policies and how states can really help support um, districts and schools in supporting their English learners. There's three basic areas in the paper. The first uh, is looking at setting requirements for graduation, um, which then determines what courses high school students take. And what makes this particular area complex is balancing the principle of holding all students to high standards and to equally high standards with providing flexibility to students who enter high school with interrupted education or who'd benefit from a non-traditional pathway. The second major area in the paper is that states can provide guidance to help schools and districts design their instructional, instructional programs and uh, place students in courses and services. Um, other than setting uh, criteria for English learner classification, those issues of instructional programs uh, and placement are usually district decisions, but there are a lot of things that uh, states can do to be uh, supportive in that, and we may end up um, talking a little bit about those uh, today as well. Uh, the third area has to do with removing barriers to access and ensuring quality instruction for English learners. Some of the examples you'll find include uh, ensuring English learners have access to advanced coursework and looking at teacher certification requirements. So that's just the briefest of brief overviews of this paper. Um, the um, bit.ly is there on your screen. You can also get to it from migrationpolicy.org. And I really encourage you to, um, to take a look at the paper. Um, so the paper is very general. It doesn't really talk about the pandemic specifically. It, it just sort of talks about what's happening with high school English learners in general. Um, and you know, and, and the types of policies that exist. Um, but then I thought it would be really interesting to have a conversation for this webinar that was a little bit more specific um, to what's going on um, right now with, with the, um, the pandemic and, and the circumstances that we're in. Um, so we're going to hear from three speakers and hear from sort of three different points of view about um, high school students, high school English learners uh, in the last couple of years. And um, our first speaker, is Carlene Thomas, 
she's the ESL program coordinator at the Texas Education Agency. So Carlene, please take it away. All right, so hopefully you're able to see that on the screen. Um, I'm excited to represent our over 1200 um, LEAs here in Texas today and talk a little bit about our English learners. Um, and in Texas, actually based on our recent legislation, uh, we are now referring to our students as emergent bilinguals. So you may hear me kind of interchange those terms. We have over 1.1 million English learners in Texas um, from pre-K to 12. Uh, making up about 21% of our total population. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about how schools have, what have been their most common needs here in Texas um, with the pandemic, uh, both in kind of the, the past form and the current form with uh, the 1920 school year and then of course the 2021 school year being so different in their own rights and then now for the 21-22 school year. So I um, just want to give you some examples of some of the five of the most common needs that our LEAs have expressed related to the pandemic and how um, some particular schools have addressed them. So first of all, one major area of need has been, of course, engagement and connection with students, particularly at the high school level where uh, students are having to uh, support their families um, even increase in increasing ways. Our high school or secondary students are always in many ways, um, supporting their families. Many of our students are um, in normal situations, uh, but then of course with the pandemic that was heightened. Um, and of course, for our rural schools, we have many rural uh, schools here in Texas, and it was really an issue of just straight access, um, technology, connectivity, and now um, they're also running into issues of, um, well, now that we gave out so many devices, now they're lost or broken or, you know, so now we're trying to also continue with using technology, but also having some of those issues. So just getting and staying connected with students has been an issue. A couple of our school districts have reported some ways in which they have um, supported their high school students specifically with student in, um, incentives um, and home visits at Southside ISD, uh, mentioning that. Of course, many districts like Ferris ISD here mentioning providing, of course, hotspots and Wi-Fi campuses or other locations where folks could stay connected. And even now um, that we have even more schools that are continuing virtual instruction, um, this is a really big um, factor to uh, address for our districts. Secondly, engaging and supporting families, of course. Um, for uh, many of our families, they our districts, they have found ways by engaging, creating, for instance, Dallas ASD created an at-home learning site. Many of our districts did this types of things. They've increased prayer involvement with providing adult ESL programs as well. Um, they've reported that they had a 300% growth in parent participation because they provided that program. So we're also finding new ways to engage parents and realizing that some of these virtual options that we've been forced into are actually long-term now supporting that partnership with families. Um, and noticing there that in their development of that at-home learning, they also partnered with as parents as partners, ensuring that the academic lessons that they provided were also trans-adapted in the top five languages for their district. Um, and you can see there also one of our charters, KIPP Texas, you know, frequent parent calls that are grounded in data, helping them to see how their students are doing, building that relationship, and look at that, focusing on empathy, really recognizing not only what parents and families have been through, but what they're continuing to go through. Um, another major common need across the state and um, is that mental health of our students and our staff, of course. Um, and again, some more examples of how folks have been addressing that, particularly at the high school level, Dallas ISD has created 66 new positions district-wide, but they also provided a licensed mental health clinician at their newcomer intake center that focuses specifically on secondary level students uh, for those immigrant students with unique specialization in trauma-informed care. Um, really important, specifically during this time, even more so. And you can see there another one of our charters, IL Texas, focusing on social emotional support webinars, specifically for parents and families. 
Another common need has been, uh, of course, linguistic progress. Um, all of our students having these periods where they have not been able to um, engage in as many oral language activities, et cetera. So really needing a lot of uh, that support. Here's a couple ways some districts have addressed that. Again, with Southside ISD, um, they're actually building in some, not just sticking students in some, you know, ELD, English language development courses uh, without building the why, what they're doing is they're actually pulling them in, having one-on-one -on -one conversations. Hey, we're going to add this to your schedule. Here's why, here's some data about it. Here's some information about it. And I think this is so powerful, right? Because especially with our high school students, they need to be bought in. Like, why did I get stuck in this class? What is this, right? So they're really building that relationship and the understanding of why that's important and getting their buy-in before just plopping them in a course. Um, additionally, uh, KIPP Texas, another example, they're engaging in targeted small groups um, in something that they're really just trying to address specifically the language needs of their students and really with a focus on data. Finally, another common need that has been expressed um, is, of course, the instructional supports for our teachers to feel supported. This was one area that you'll notice we, we realized sometimes when things hit like a pandemic, <laughs> something crazy, what it can also do is highlight um, some of the areas of need for growth that was already existing that now is exacerbated, right, because of the pandemic. And so that professional development for them, you see some examples here with Tyler ISD um, providing a district level language integration lesson plan that they're integrating very specifically. And then you see an example from Ferris ISD with some strategic professional development and particularly focusing in on that speaking development. So based on all the needs of the field and what they're doing and what, what they're needing, uh, we have provided some responsive state supports. So this was largely, uh, for instance, through the 2021 school year, we really noticed a big need for program continuity. You know, what, uh, how, do our districts understand not only the legal requirements, but what's necessary to ensure that you're continuing your program? So we did that. We also provided just, let's keep it simple. Here's some five basic instructional practices to be doing during remote or virtual instruction that work in the classroom too, but let's get that up. So we provided that uh, last school year and we've increased many supports in our parent and family um, engagement section of our English learner portal for our state um, to really provide families um, as partners in um, that work. Now, moving forward, that was really responsive, um, particularly during the onset of the pandemic. And really thinking about now moving forward, what does this mean for us? One of the uh, continued um, state supports that we're focusing on is particularly at the secondary level, um, our newcomers. Um, we have in Texas about 8%, well, we have um, about, Oh, 108,000, almost 110,000 um, students who are identified as immigrants, you know, based on last year's data. Of those almost 110,000 students, 8% of those are identified as English learners, right? So also identified as English learners. So noticing that, sec you know, intersectionality, um, we have developed a newcomer community of practice with about 50 of our LEAs. Um, who are participating with us and we're providing those supports. And additionally, the last thing um, that we wanna share today um, is the development of a content-based language instruction framework um, and that we are going to be outlining what are the most important um, instructional practices between our both bilingual and ESL programs across the state. What are those key factors? And we've just recently released, you see a bit.ly there, we've just recently released a uh, quick guide about that. So you can take a look there and see, because again, we wanna be responsive to the fact that even though the, the pandemic has heightened our awareness of these needs, the bottom line is we've got to know the best instructional practices for our students served in any of our programs and how can we address their needs. 
So I hope you can take a look at that quick guide and hopefully it'll be beneficial for you as well. And I'm just leaving you here then with um, my contact information. So um, my Twitter handle's there as well. So you can tweet me and we can uh, stay connected. But thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share, Julie. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Carleen. That was so interesting. And I was really struck by um, two things you said separately that sort of came together in my mind that um, we were talking about sort of trying to continue things that are working or, you know, things that, that changed during the pandemic. But, you know, you now say that those are permanent and then that also that the, the pandemic sort of exacerbated um, PD needs that were there already. And I think that this is one of the um, you know, the themes that we hear continually is, is how, you know, there was this, this was a, a major event in our country, but there's also sort of this through line of there were needs before there was, um, you know, things we weren't doing great before. Um, and, and there's things, you know, that changed in the middle and now, you know, taking all of that together and moving forward. So um, it's just a really interesting um way to sort of see this time as, as not just sort of being plopped down in the middle, but sort of having continuity on both ends. So um, we are going to now turn to Sashi Rayasam, who is the director of K-12 English Learner Services at Dur Durham Public Schools in North Carolina. So Sashi, please go ahead. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I'm the director of the English Learner Services in Durham Public Schools, North Carolina. Durham is an urban district with about 33,000 students, give or take. And our racial makeup is about 40% of um, African-American, 34% Hispanic, and about 19% white, and then a smattering of other racial um, So we'll... We'll move on to our discussion focus for today. We'll uh, set the context with our English learner demographics. And then of course the topic of the day, impact of pandemic on high schools, the academic supports that we will be and we are providing and what we did provide last year and some of the next steps and viable options for our students to continue the momentum. So some of the district quick facts, as you can see, we have about 10,000 uh, plus English learners. Uh, I mean, students who speak a language other than English at home. I'm sorry about that. And then students who speak Spanish, we have about 8,000 plus. Our English learners are about 5,473 with the latest headcount. And that percent converts to about 16.7% of our total district demographic. Uh, a point to note is uh, with our high schoolers, we are 15% of our total high school EL population are students who with interrupted schooling or outside students. And that kind of gets exaggerated when you think about the supports that those students need in a good year to begin with, and then in a pandemic, even more so. So the next slide uh, also just gives you a little bit about our demographics here. We have um, our five major languages, as you can see, Spanish is at 91.2%, and then we just take a drastic drop into Arabic, Kiswahili, uh, Pashto, and Farsi. Um, of course, some of the impact of the pandemic, uh, essentially student attendance. If we have to serve them, we need students to be able to participate. That being said, many of our high school students dropped out after the first few weeks to get a full-time job. Many of them in this area work in construction or with contractors, go out with a parent or an uncle and so forth. So that resulted in a high number of dropouts. Managing their course load while they were working. So they got part-time jobs and then they're trying to juggle school along with that. Challenges with technology. Our uh, district was committed to supporting every student with a device. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, our priority was to give our high school students the device because of graduation needs and so forth. Um, in doing so, they did provide hotspots and a device. However, you know, when you have a family of five and everybody is using the computer, your bandwidth on those hotspots is slim to nothing. And so there were those challenges in addition to the skills that our students had. Nobody was prepared for this. We just had to pivot and move into a whole different set of learning. 
with um, instruction being virtual. Teachers were not necessarily trained very well in that. So that was the challenge. And then family responsibilities. Many of our young adults are already, even during a regular school year, responsible for childcare and so forth. And that continued over this time, except that they had distractions during the school day. So our services uh, continued. We continued with our Newcomer Academy for our site students. Our district adopted a Wellness Wednesdays for the social emotional uh, support for both staff and students. And they planned activities around that. There were enrichment activities, arts and so forth. And teachers had time for professional learning. So those Wellness Wednesdays, I think, were very well valued in our district. Language instruction, of course, was a challenge because you're trying to work all of that on the computer and trying to get students to you know, hit a button, get onto Zoom, and when they have to change classes, help them navigate and you're not there to hold their hands in person. So that was a, a big challenge. And I think many of our teachers were relieved to come back in person, if nothing else for that. And of course, graduation and college and career prep, just motivating our students to, to maintain the momentum and finish those two or three course credits that they needed to be able to graduate was uh, one of the things that we had to deal with. Of course, our district um, used uh, several funding sources. We are a resource-rich district and uh, have several grant found, uh, funds that came through, it, uh, as well as ESSER funds that we used for additional positions, um, additional family support, more interpreters to be able to make those phone calls to parents and maintain that momentum of communication. Next slide. So one of our points of pride is our uh, very small newcomer academy that we have in the district. All our, our schools with the high newcomer population have a newcomer schedule, but this was developed just for our site students about four years ago. In 2013, we had a very high influx of immigrants and refugees. And so in response to that, we opened this center because these were 18 and 19 year olds coming in and then sitting in a classroom with 14 year olds just wasn't healthy for either group. So this is for first time ninth graders who are newcomers, over age with limited schooling and it's a one year program. And the benefits of that are with a smaller setting and more personalized learning environments, we were able to get them to take coursework like electives and uh, Spanish for native speakers and get their PE credits and so forth out of the way before they moved to their base school. It gave them some time to acculturate to an American school system with some extended school year options. So again, like many other districts, you know, we all provide our supports for student success. We uh, blend in with whatever is supported in the district, but of course, customize it for, a different, for different subgroups. So they're divided into three categories of instructional support, social, emotional, and our outreach. The overarching uh, statement I'd like to make about this is it takes a village to guide our students through uh, high school and prepare them for beyond high school. And this pandemic showed how much of a village we needed with all of the uh, technology that we had to operate. Like that was a, a a barrier in some ways because we couldn't be really in, in person and in touch with students, but that was also one that opened doors for us. So our new Karma Academy for students, as I've mentioned before, was one of the things we continued with extended learning opportunities, especially during the summer, providing students with first time credit, which was great for our English learners because they felt that they could move on rather than think that they had to only be in a summer program for credit recovery. So that was a positive outcome for that. We used that time for coaching our ESL and classroom teachers to do more of the flipped classroom and train more in amplifying their uh, technology skills and uses. And of course, supplemental newcomer positions and uh, resources were provided both through digital platforms as well as other uh, community outreach sources. Again, like I've mentioned before, we're a resource-rich district. So we have partnerships with the Art Therapy Institute to help with the trauma and social emotional supports of our immigrants and newcomers 
just to be able to acculturate. I mean, you make you can't quantify what it accomplishes, but that the students are able to attend school every day, come to school and have an outlet through this uh, way, which is non-invasive is a great plus. Um, in addition to that, we have partnerships with the uh, US Committee for Refugees and Immigrants that provide us with mental health um, services. And they also train students in, we actually acquired a grant that trained students in um, soft skills for, you know, beyond high school, it's directed toward 15 and above students. So just preparing them for jobs and professional courtesy resume writing and those kinds of things as they're new in this country. It's a 16 week program that the USCRI received a grant for and we are the beneficiaries of it. Um, some of the other things also that I would like to uh, lift up are our university partnerships. We are surrounded with Duke, UNC, North Carolina Central, and um, these university partnerships have been greatly beneficial with the tutoring supports that we've been able to access. We have wraparound services again through our dorm community. Um, as a community, our community is very vocal, very progressive, and very out there to help our, our uh, students and families. And this was one opportunity to come together. And of course, um, with all these resources, we uh, our family outreach through WhatsApp and Facebook Watch was again amplified because we had to rely on families to continue the educational process that ordinarily we would have been doing in our schools. And so to all of this, our um, small crowning success was with our um, English learner graduation rates that are on the next slide. So this is a five-year longitudinal EL graduation uh, trajectory. And again, uh, starting with 2017, we still had an influx of immigrants and newcomers come in through our uh, schools. And we've been able to reduce the dropout rate, but also increase our graduation rate. And except that odd year between 2019 and 2020, which we made a 0.5 drop, in my mind, it's flatlining. I don't consider it a drop. But we've moved on an upward trajectory. We have to still amplify a lot of our supports and resources. And one of the things that I would really like to lift is the, the student voice that our English learner supplemental graduation coaches, we have about five positions that just support high schools and they provide additional support to the student services counselors and social workers, but are dedicated to working with our English learners to help them learn to own their graduation, understand their transcripts, know what they have to do to plan for a future that they don't have parental guidance and they probably don't know what community resources to access. So this is a, a, a special position that we've always had. And this past year has shown how much they have been able to make an impact on our students. And so while the data speaks for itself, we have a long way to go but we think we're moving in the right direction. And um, uh, my contact information is on the next slide. And thank you very much. Great, thank you so much, Sashi. I, I, um, the, again, it's very interesting how all of these um, issues sort of bring up the, the connectedness and the, you know, the fact that we, we always needed to be together, but now even more so, and, and really bringing all those partnerships together to support the students, um, I definitely think is one of the, you know, the great things that's going to um, continue moving forward. Um, and uh, I just want to remind everybody uh, to go ahead and put questions in the Q&A box or in the chat, and uh, we will um, have Q&A for all of the participants um, after the third presentation, but um, uh, please do go ahead and, and uh, put in your questions. Um, so next we have Mariko Yoshisato, who recently completed her dissertation at the University of California, San Diego, and she's currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Social Organization of Schools at Johns Hopkins University. So Mariko, please take it away. 
Thank you so much, Julie, and thank you everyone for attending today. Um, yes, as you mentioned, I'm currently at Johns Hopkins University School of Education, and my research aims to inform policy change shaping post-secondary pathways of promise for students facing barriers to accessing higher education. And I also bring over a decade's worth of practitioner knowledge and experience from supporting first-generation college-going students in K-12 and university settings. And today I'm going to share a a brief overview of my study titled Beyond Social Mobility, a student-centered analysis of the aspirations of rural Latinx youth. This research took place during the pandemic in a rural agricultural valley along the US-Mexico border. And to summarize the gap in scholarship, students' aspirations create the foundation for their college and career futures, and research shows that aspirations are one of the strongest predictors of successful transitions into adulthood. However, much research on rural students' aspirations fails to explore how youth's complex identities intersect with school and community contexts to inform students' ideas about their futures, particularly during historic moments. Next slide, please. So the overarching research question was how do students attending a rural school located along the US-Mexico border envision their college and career opportunities and make decisions about their post-secondary pathways? And the sub-questions here get at how students' schooling experiences and identities inform their aspirations and decisions. Next slide, please. The participants in this case study were five first-generation college-bound seniors who were enrolled in a nationally recognized college preparatory program at their large public high school. All the students identified as Mexican immigrant background students who, who attended school in the US while most of their family members resided on the Mexican side of the border. The school population was 93% Hispanic or Latino, 74% socioeconomically disadvantaged and 25% English learner. Next slide, please. So here, I summarized the students' career goals and college paths just to show how every participant had very specific post-secondary visions, and they expressed a lot of knowledge about what those pathways would require. So the findings about these individual student cases showed that unlike past studies, these students did not have, quote, low aspirations. There was not a mismatch between high career goals and little college knowledge. Their schooling had successfully exposed them to many college options. And although students were all admitted to competitive four-year universities in California, the state they resided in, four students enrolled in community college first and one enrolled out of state. Next slide, please. Now I'll discuss just two overarching findings explaining how mental health impacted students' future thinking during the pandemic. So using participants' quotes, I'll highlight key turning points in the journeys of just two students, Sophia and Elba. And the big takeaway is that students had holistic aspirations, but their school experiences often did not fully support this. And students' plans for meaningful lives differed from trusted adults' beliefs about post-secondary success. Next slide, please. So across the school year, students directly attributed their long-term mental health challenges to the harmful conditions of their pre-pandemic lives. And students attributed recent improvements in their mental health to their new online schooling context. Sophia and Elba both struggled with depression and anxiety during in-person schooling, and their pandemic experiences created opportunities for personal growth. So Sophia said, the pandemic forced me to be alone and do things for myself. I was able to grow into being more independent. Before, I would not be able to do anything alone. Now I do everything for myself and I'm not anxious. And Elva said, with the pandemic, everything has been better with me because everything's online. I hated in-person school. My classmates made me feel like less and less and less. My suicidal tendencies have stopped because I'm not in that group environment. So improved mental health contributed to developing a positive self-concept during the pandemic for these students. Next slide, please. So as a result, Sophia realized the pandemic had created a chance for her to have a balanced and well-rounded life for the first time. Sophia expressed, I like having everything. I want to have a good school life, work life, social life, and life with my family too. These are all things that helped my depression feel better. 
I was so tired of school. And now it's weird because even though I have more things going on, I feel like I'm doing better. And for Elba too, the experience of pandemic schooling actually led to feelings of joy and accomplishment. Elba reflected, I feel really, really happy that I'm finishing high school. This year I took advanced placement, completed my seal of biliteracy and did dual enrollment. So I feel like I did other things outside of usual in-person school and I feel accomplished. So students in this study took on new challenges during the pandemic with their futures in mind. Because of their new positive self-concepts, they felt empowered to pursue opportunities they had not considered before. And next slide, please. In the end, this impacted students' decision-making. And students had different beliefs from their teachers when it came to their choice to attend the local community college rather than go immediately to a four-year university. Students were also unsure about entering a new social context because of their past mental health struggles. However, they also emphasized a new awareness that in the future, they should not neglect themselves and their needs. So Sophia said, I think my teachers are kind of upset because I didn't really apply to any universities, but community college is not a bad thing. I think it's going to help me more, especially for my mental health. I'm not ready to leave yet. Then when I'm ready, I'll leave. And Elva reflected, I'm just cautious about pushing myself to be more open and enter into a university group setting. I think about it like, what am I going to do in my future? I can't just be pushing myself to the side. I'm conscious that I need to work on myself, but I'm also cautious that I have to do it slowly, step by step. Thus, students took actions towards their future lives in ways that challenged the priorities of their equity-focused educators. The next slide, please. So moving on to implications for policy and practice, we often focus on college and workforce entry as measures of equity and success. And these outcomes are even more emphasized in rural immigrant communities due to disparities in opportunity. However, this study showed why educators must attend to students' holistic aspirations and think differently about post-secondary readiness. Because although these students achieved the gold standard of college preparation, they envisioned future lives that actually decentered the kinds of aspirations that adults expected them to value. And this is not to say that schools should minimize college going efforts that facilitate access to four year universities. However, beyond the aims of social mobility, participants wanted a meaningful life while working towards traditional milestones in their transitions to adulthood. So it could be transformative to involve youth in designing these initiatives designed to support them in these goals. And findings also speak to school climate. So the strict focus on academic norms and the harmful social environment that students experienced pre-pandemic negatively affected their feelings towards the future. So to address this, schools must support many dimensions of students' well-being, especially as we transition back to in-person schooling. And ultimately, youth in this study critiqued how adults' priorities for post-secondary success can fail to value students as whole people. Therefore, centering youth's voices is essential to ensure alignment between school supports and students' visions for fulfilling lives. And that's all for me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That is just such an interesting um, uh, story, I was going to say, it is an interesting story. And um, when I first talked to Mariko about this uh, research, I, I said, oh, my goodness, we're, we're such, um, sis, uh, so simpatico about, um, you know, how we how we look at the high school uh, trajectory, because, you know, that is really one of my concerns in my research as well as, you know, just sort of thinking about what are the, the needs of individuals? Are we are we really um, honoring all of the different kinds of pathways that students might take? So um, I'm just really, um, looking forward to reading the rest of your dissertation uh, when it's available. Um, I, I want to uh, encourage folks, we've had a few people put uh, questions in the Q&A. People, um, uh, you can go ahead and put uh, more questions in uh, the Q&A or the, the chat box. You can also email your questions to events at migrationpolicy.org or tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. Um, so we have uh, several questions. Let me start with um, Sashi. I have two uh, questions that are sort of a, um, a clarification. One question is, um, have the university and tutoring partnerships continued through the pandemic? And if so, was that in person or virtually? 
And um, the other question is about EL graduation coaches. Um, have you added any more of those positions? What's their caseload like? And how often do they meet with students? Just tell us a little bit more about uh, the context for the, the EL grad coaches, um, as well as these uh, university tutoring partnerships. All right, thank you. So the university partnerships have continued. During the pandemic, they were not in person, they were virtual. But uh, I think that small environment helped the students um, be able to participate. So that, that's the answer to that one. If there are further questions from there, I'd be happy to respond. As far as our graduation coaches, a few years ago, we only had one. Then we increased it gradually to four. We have five comprehensive high schools and about five small high schools. And the specialty high schools, generally the students have a lot of support within the school counseling department that the need for graduation coaches wasn't that high until the pandemic. But um, right now we have four positions and I'm inching my way to getting five so that we could at least have one graduation coach per comprehensive high school. Their caseloads vary um, by intensity but they have a, a thumb on all the English learners. But again, the more intense cases come through for attendance reasons, academic probation and those kinds of things. So anywhere between 60 to 65 students, it may be daily meeting, it may be group meeting uh, on themes and so forth. And my social workers, they're all social worker or, or counselors. Um, who happen to be bilingual and work with our students. Great, thank you so much. Um, Carlene, to you, um, we have a question about, um, uh, about how schools are trying to help boost speaking opportunities for English learners who learned remotely last year. Could you tell us a little bit about what uh, Ferris, uh, ISD and others are doing to work on that? Absolutely. Well, specifically in that in that example, they're they're bringing in um, targeted consultants and coaches who are providing some specific professional development to the teachers regarding that. So I'm not privy to exactly everything those coaches are coaching them about, but a lot of examples that we've seen is folks really leveraging. Um, you know, during the pandemic, especially when students, they weren't getting as much oral practice in conversations as they typically would in a classroom face-to-face -face setting, but what they were getting was practice with recording themselves, listening to themselves and responding to other, potentially responding to other people's recorded responses. And so I think one thing I've seen a lot of our districts trying to do is to leverage that practice to not only one support teachers in seeing how to use that for progress monitoring and individualistic feedback to students on um, their oral practice and also their listening skills and being able to listen and respond uh, to a prompt. Um, so we've seen a lot of folks trying to, you know, really leverage the use of those technologies on how to progress monitor their students as well as have those instructional uh, practices. And I think now it's really, we're seeing a lot of districts focus on embedding, even now it's difficult with those oral language uh, practice in the classroom because we still have a lot of social distancing protocols in place at campuses, um, but trying to integrate into all content areas, frequent opportunities to connect uh, speaking oral language um, practice within, you know, all of their writing and reading uh, comprehension practice as well. So just inserting that in all content areas um, and, you know, all enrichment areas as well. So it's just frequent, frequent practice that they're trying to employ at this point, but definitely see an increase of a lot of um, professional development specific to how to increase speaking opportunities to get kiddos back into the habit of practice. Great, thank you. 
And uh, Mariko, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more. I know it's so hard to, I wrote a dissertation too, and I know how hard it is to condense it, you know, it, even into maybe an hour presentation, but 10 minutes is, oh my God. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the program that the students were enrolled in, the, the college prep program. Um, you know, was it during school or after school? How much did, you know, how, how much, uh, how many services, what kinds of services, all of that? Oh, great. Thank you so much for that question. I appreciate it because that was truly, from my view, especially having a background in school counseling and college advising, one of the most interesting aspects of the study in that so much work on aspirations and post-secondary readiness addresses students who are under-resourced um, and face a lot of barriers in terms of college knowledge, college support, um, even financial aid, being first-generation college going students. And that is incredibly important to focus on. And that's what much of my work actually <laughs> centralizes. However, this study was unique in that I worked with students who were enrolled in the AVID program, Advancement via Individual Determination, um, nationally recognized college preparatory program. And they it's a credit bearing course, part of their school day that they were taking from seventh through 12th grade. And in addition to AVID, they were also accessing after school community-based college readiness programs, and they were doing summer programs such as Upward Bound um, or accessing university partnerships in the region that facilitated things like college visits, dormitory stays, summer programs, and so forth. And so what was really fascinating to me was that this population in particular was really meeting the gold standard of college readiness in many ways. And they even expressed, you know, they had, they successfully achieved college readiness by college admission standards. They did the FAFSA, they got financial aid, you know, they kind of checked all the boxes in terms of the needs we try to meet for first generation college going students. And they decided very intentionally to take a different path. Um, so that's kind of what I think is unique about this particular group of students I was working with. Um, and the importance of case study and really getting deeply into understanding students' lives in a longitudinal sense um, to follow their decision making process at multiple points throughout this critical pivotal year, not only being their senior year of high school, but also the pandemic. Great, thank you. Um, we have a, a question here I'm gonna um, pose to both Carleen and Sashi and, and Mariko. I, um, I think you've addressed it a little bit, but if you wanna jump in, um, I, then that would be great too. Uh, the question is, graduation is of course critically important. However, meeting high, high school graduation requirements and being ready for college are not always the same thing. So what are districts doing to prepare English learners not only for high school graduation, but for post-secondary education? I don't know who wants to try to go first. Carlene, do you want to uh, go first? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, that's a good question. I think it's really diverse, right? Depending on um, the the particular districts and their the their individual student needs, right? Um, because I think at at any level, it's um, even what I really heard in um, the research that you just shared, right? Um, earlier with the uh, dissertation project. You know, you're really hearing that um, students are really needing to engage in how do I become dependent or independent, right? How do I really become independent and um, make a lot of these decisions on my own? Um, so it's much more about um, that really um, not just in mental health spaces, but also in mental development and growth. How do I really become a holistic person? So behind, beyond just the academic criteria, beyond linguistic progress, how am I ready to take on this next stage of life? And I do really think that because of the pandemic and really what we saw a lot of those students talking about in their examples is that um, supporting students in how to be good decision makers um, and I don't know specifically how exactly all of our, our districts are really addressing that, but we hear that coming through. We hear that coming through in a lot of their concerns for their students and how they're supporting them to be ready um, for, for life after high school graduation. So I think overall, that's what we're really seeing is folks really focusing on um, those just um, soft skill type of activities. And Sashi? 
So, um, you know, piggybacking on what Carlene just said, one of the things is our, uh, especially the experiences that our high school uh, immigrants have, you know, whether they're crossing the border or coming through uh, other trauma uh, backgrounds, their resilience is incomparable. I mean, it just is. And they also have been through so many adult experiences as youngsters. So approaching them with, uh, the, with the respect and the maturity of an adult and you know that one-on-one -on -one and being able to support them, that's what our graduation coaches do. It is giving them that personalized attention to be able to build their dreams. You know, they come here with not knowing what they want, but they know they want to be successful. They know they need to make money and they come with a strong work ethic. And to be able to capitalize on that and flesh it out is what our folks do. And that's where, again, you know, you, um, I was just uh, thinking of Mariko and the, the project. And those are the kinds of things that we really need to be able to get the community to support them not just thinking of it from the lens of a school system, but you need so much more than that. Right, absolutely. Yeah, Mariko, do you wanna um, add anything to that? Oops, you're, there you go. Oh, I, yeah, unmuted now. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I. what I'm really hearing is kind of bridging the, these two great questions about um, you know, graduation, post-secondary readiness, uh, college success, and then also a question that followed up, if I can sort of jump here um, to this idea of holistic aspirations for youth and then connecting that to local community and economies. I see that that question came up on the Q&A. And I just oh, wanted they, to- the, Everybody else can't see that, but uh, oh, let me, uh, let, me read that. <laughs> let me read that to you. And then that, I think that makes an excellent pairing. Um, okay. can, you, can you speak more about holistic aspirations for, for youth? versus the needs of our local economy's labor force. I've noticed a disconnect between the industries that are in need of workers, <clears throat> excuse me, and the desire for youth to have jobs that fulfill their needs but don't match the needs of the local economies, such as agricultural work, service, and hospitality. Is this something schools are trying to address? Um, and, 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 you know, the industry is changing also in terms of um, technology use. So tell us, yeah, go ahead and, and tell us about... Um, uh, the holistic aspirations. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'll, I'll try to be quick with this one. Um, right. It just, the question really intrigued me because I think it's really important and it relates to some of the newer work that I'm doing here in at Johns Hopkins. Um, you know, the study was located in Southern California as a different kind of um, context for English learners and first-generation college-going students. But here in Baltimore, there are a lot of really important questions getting at this point of, you know, schools can prepare, schools can do everything within their capacity to prepare students for college and career success. There are so many programs that have come forth, so many dedicated educators doing this kind of work. Um, but just like, you know, the point raised just now, we're not really going to be able to ensure that students are on pathways to promise if the local communities, local economies and industries are not equally prepared to receive those students after high school or after college or when they circle back into their communities. So whether that's an issue of communication, partnership, or even broader concerns like institutional racism or bias against English learners, um, there's a push, at least in my local region, to now partner with community organizations, businesses, um, and that local industry to be sure that they're understanding the needs of students that are coming out of high school. And if they are aligning some of their workforce needs with the needs of students that are coming back to support, who want to support their community and just aren't able to access that opportunity um, for a lot of reasons that exist outside of the schooling context. Um, so I just wanted to chime in that that's something I'm definitely interested in working on. Um, and I'd love to follow up with anyone interested in that kind of work. Great. Um, Sashi, we had a, another clarification for you. And then I have a question again for everybody. Um, uh, what's the criteria for graduation coaches? Do they have to be teachers or can they be community members? And let me ask the general question because I'll come to you uh, to, first for that one too, Sashi. Um, 
uh, well, how are districts addressing, uh, your district addressing chronic absenteeism? Um, and how uh, is the district addressing loss of credits because of absences? So uh, they're providing, uh, uh, we have an online school, a virtual academy, where students could enroll. It's uh, not on a rolling basis. It's not on an as-needed basis. Um, that's a school in and of itself. But uh, additionally, in our schools, we have uh, Canvas, which is a learning platform that many school districts use. And so if our students are absent for whatever reason, whether they're quarantining or whether they're sick, automatically everything is loaded, uploaded into Canvas and they can communicate that way. They also get a Zoom link so they can participate in their classes from home. And that's kind of been one of the learnings we've been able to take away to use to our advantage um, after the pandemic. Great, and um, Carlene, do you wanna add anything about absences? Yeah, I think it, when it comes to the districts really addressing their student absences, I think now it's new, finding new ways for them to engage the students personally. Um, like I mentioned, even that one example of a district uh, really providing some incentives that go beyond um, the uh, you know, traditional, yay, you made it to school, but some incentives to help them, uh, support them in being involved. And then um, also um, doing some of those personal one-on-one -on -one, um, conferences with students to really see in here, where are you? What, what can we do to support you on a really individualistic basis? Great. Um, a question's just come in and I want to um, kind of take it and, and, and ask it and, and then move it in a, a little bit different direction. Um, and, and Mariko, maybe we'll go to you first, but anybody else who wants to jump in. Uh, the question is about trauma-informed training. Um, the, the specific question is um, the, the one that was that what was mentioned, does it focus on Latinx um, immigrant students and immigration trauma? And, and the more general question I want to ask is, you know, this is a really interesting time because we have all kinds of trauma. We have COVID trauma, we have, um, you know, race awareness and, 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 you know, all of the issues around Black Lives Matter and all of those, um, you know, not necessarily traumas, but things that have, you know, really entered people's consciousness. Um, we have people arriving from Haiti, from Afghanistan, from the Northern Triangle in, in Central America. Um, there's sort of a lot of sort of convening issues around trauma. Um, and I'm just wondering if there's um, you know, anything that you could tell us about how, um, how all of these things kind of weave together or, you know, how can, how can all of the, you know, the students who've been here and the students who are coming in um, sort of help each other or support each other um, through all of these uh, traumatic events? I'm, I'm happy to share, but I also want to open the floor to Carlene because I think you you raised, um, you know, locally in your district, you were doing some of this work. So I defer to your expertise at the moment. No, it's fine. I think they might have noticed I, I dropped in the chat because I had seen an earlier question about uh, mental health, you know, supports and the Texas Education Agency did develop, I dropped in the chat a link to uh, Project Restore. It was really a response of some legislation that happened, uh, you know, really due to the pandemic and we had some funding that came in and they were able to develop some videos, a video series for educators on one, processing their own trauma, processing their own mental health, and then being able to also uh, really see and understand the trauma that their students may have gone through or the mental health issues of their students. And so it's really designed, that particular project in training was really designed holistically about all the, you know, ACEs, you know, um, all the things that our students and, and our staff, you know, may have encountered pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, because of it, not because of it, all the things. So it's really a holistic view. Um, and I think, again, in, in one silver lining, if you can, you know, if we can call it that for the pandemic in a sense, is that it has really highlighted this need that was always there 
to really ensure that we had trauma-informed practices and really uh, elevating the need for mental health um, awareness and support. And so um, this, this training series specifically is very holistic. So it's not targeted specifically um, to our Latino population. It's really just in general, all the different reasons for which um, students may have encountered trauma. Great. Sashi, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, so uh, we, again, you know, to echo uh, trauma-informed uh, trainings have been ongoing for the last seven or eight years, at least in a, in a more intense way. We've had our university partnerships uh, with our UNC health systems through our refugee agencies that we can get the, the culturally specific uh, support services. Um, so you have your Asians and you have the others who, especially new immigrants who are very uh, cagey about wanting to come out and be able to access the uh, assistance. So we've got the culturally diverse supports for the Latino community as well as for the others um, that we have provided because we don't think school counselors are totally equipped to deal with some of these uh, the, the intense issues that come up with families. Right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, Mariko, let me just come back. And was there anything else you wanted to add? Because I'm going to let you have a, a quick last word if there was anything more on um, supporting students' mental health. Gosh, thank you. I'll make it super <laughs> quick. I will say, um, in, at least in the study that I conducted, it was incredibly insightful to see how much more aware I think the current generation of youth are when it comes to mental health. And that was something that was echoed among educators as well. Um, teachers, counselors, principals, and district leaders that I spoke with also said that students were very conscious and forthcoming in terms of raising their mental health concerns. And that's what I saw through interviews as well. So I think, you know, as was brought up, unfortunately, if we can say there is, quote, a silver lining um, to this past experience, it's that the youth are incredibly forthcoming and eager to engage on mental health topics. And at least in this study, viewed mental health and holistic well-being as extremely central to how they thought about um, their future lives that they wanted to craft for themselves. Fantastic. Okay, we'll, um, we'll have to leave it there. Um, thank you all so much for attending. I'm sorry if there are any questions we didn't get to. We tried to get through as many as we could. Um, the audio will be available tomorrow on our website. Uh, any reporters on the call can call uh, on, on the webinar can contact Michelle Middlestat at mmiddlestat at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, you can find the email on, on the website again. And uh, don't forget to check out the report that we released today, uh, the impacts on English learners of key state high school policies and graduation requirements. Again, thank you so much. This was a fantastic webinar. We, I think we all really learned a lot from our presenters. Thank you to the presenters and thank you to all for all of you for attending. Have a great afternoon.